This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York, Queens College. Today, the Momo Challenge. My co-panelists are Gabriel Rossman from UCLA and Timothy Gill from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Our discussion was recorded on March 6, 2019. Have you guys heard of the the Momo challenge that's uh, going on? Have either of you heard about this? Yes. Uh, A little, but vaguely. And by the time the listener hears this on March 13th, they are going to (laughs) have forgotten about it. So why don't you remind us? (laughs) Okay. Okay. So basically it is an online hoax where someone took a picture of uh, a a statue from japan of some you know scary face lady and there was word we received word actually from our school district about how there was a hoax going on where children would be exposed to a picture of this momo lady this and, and would be told that they're cursed and uh, that they had to complete uh, a set of dangerous tasks to remove the curse. That was the word that was circulating about what was going on. The kids were running into this in the middle of watching Peppa Pig on YouTube and things like (laughs) that. And uh, it triggered a panic. And in fact, it actually hit my household. One of my daughters came home uh, crying uh, because uh, a girl at school had warned her about the Momo challenge and supposedly how some girl had killed herself over it. And my daughter was curious. And then she saw the picture. My daughter's like nine years old. And then she was in tears, whatever, whatever, whatever. So uh, I read a piece in uh, from the CBC uh, where they had social media analysts who were arguing that the hoax was effective because they turned parents into the vehicle for its propagation. Uh, Basically parents were spreading the hoax through warnings. And the way my daughter had been afflicted by this Momo challenge was the same means that most kids were, Uh, they were hearing warnings about it and that would alert them to the existence of the hoax. And then they would read it and sort of be, you know, run up into like a hysteria over over the potential of a curse and whatever. And I just thought, wow, what a great contagion study to be done there, right? Like there was a, a social panic about sort of an ill that was happening in society and it was being spread through the warnings rather than the ill itself. Like the warnings were the vehicle yeah that spread the picture this is you know like mark said about uh history repeats itself the first time is tragedy the second is farce yeah. uh you know this is basically the malleus maleficarum story what's that so it, around the time of the reformation hmm. there was this uh witch scare and hmm. there was this idea that there were witches out there causing uh trouble Although the interesting thing is that early on, which in the Middle Ages, almost nobody was executed for witchcraft. Like we think mm-hmm. of witchcraft as like this medieval idea. It's actually a Renaissance and Enlightenment idea. Oh, um, yeah. So, you know, in, in the Middle Ages, they had heretics. They didn't have witches. And, you know, in the late Middle Ages, kind of the around the time of the Reformation, there was this idea that you had certain heretics who were basically Satanists. Mm-hmm. But it was a very hazy idea. And then you had... Um, uh, two guys, Kramer and Springer, 
which sounds like a um, yeah. Canadian Seinfeld. prank comedy. No, I was thinking Kenny and Spenny. But, uh, no. you, know, they, you know, you can imagine these two Dominican friars who are constantly playing pranks on each other. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, they wrote this book called The Hammer of the Witches, Malleus Maleficarum, uh, that was explaining how to spot witches. And that's where we got the idea of witches. Oh. And which was from this book on how to find witches. And if you look at like modern um, neo pagan or, you know, witch, Wicca, whatever, a lot of their ideas about what witchcraft is about, they got from Malleus Maleficarum. Huh. So the warning triggered the panic. It, well, the, it triggered the, the panic. And even more radically than that, it triggered the behavior that the panic was intended to um, suppress. You know, so, I mean, before that, there probably was a certain amount of pagan survivalism, right? I mean, you probably Mm. did have peasants out in the woods doing a certain amount of weird shit, Mm. you know, that dated back to before Christianization. Um, But they they weren't consciously witches, and they didn't think of themselves as worshiping the devil or anything like that. But Mm. you do have people who are consciously witches, consciously Satanists, and they get a lot of their ideas from... Uh, you know this manual that was written for hunting witches. So who does who does this type of panic stuff in our discipline? Do you know of anybody who studies that type of stuff? Like, uh, oh God, I should. I'm a diff- I'm a diffusion guy. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a yeah. I mean, there's a whole thing on moral panics, and I mean, the best, the biggest, uh, and most well documented moral panic in recent memory was the uh, Satanism panic of the late '80s, early 1990s, which was also largely spread by kind of uh, official sources, right? That was kind of a conspiracy theory that was spread by the official organs of the state. And, you know, so you had police departments spreading the Satan panic, you had school districts spreading the Satan panic, and you had people going to prison for absolutely crazy things. Like there was a, you know, like a five mile long tunnel that children were molested in and, you know, things like that. And some of these people like only got out of prison recently, like they were in prison for like 20 years for absolutely ridiculous allegations Hmm. where basically you had cops um, and various social movement type people in, you know, trying to prevent satanic child abuse, which basically didn't exist um, and warning kids about it. And then the kids uh, basically repeating it back to them and saying, Oh yeah, my daycare, you know, you know, they killed a goat and then they touched us, you know, and then people went to prison because of that. Yeah. Uh, well, there was this book by Gary Allen Fine, Bill Ellis, uh, a few years back, like 2010, The Global Grapevine. Um, it's about rumors. Uh, I just pulled it up, Why Rumors of Terrorism, Immigration, Trade Matter. And this might be a little embarrassing. I did I did a review for it, but I, I, I don't really remember. I mean, it was in 2011, so it's been, you know, approaching 10 years. So I don't remember all the arguments. But, you know, in it, there's a bunch of different chapters on, you know, rumors that spread about, like, uh, uh, pins being in Chiquita bananas mm. and rumors about 9-11 that there was like Satan in the clouds and that, you know, mm. like you had all these Muslims that were dancing in the streets of, you know, New Jersey mm-hmm. and just about all, just about sort of like folklore and all these types of rumors that uh, develop and all the rest of it. So I thought it was a very interesting book. Um, I remember I had some critiques, but um, embarrassingly, I can't, uh, I can't remember about, I can't remember all the details, but um, 
you know, I, I want to say that there was something that stuck out to me is that people sort of latch on to these rumors. They want to feel like they have control over their world, um, yeah. that they know what's going on. And so for whatever, but I remember feeling like uh, there was a lot that was, you know, left you know, that, that, that there was a, a lot that still needed to be explained. You know, why do some people latch on to these rumors, but mm. not, not others? You know, why are some susceptible to these ideas, um, et cetera? But, uh, yeah, so there is – so that was kind of uh, – but I don't know if there's, you know, beyond that, if there's uh, much more out there. Yeah, so um, what Tim said reminded me of Patricia Turner's book. I heard it through the grapevine. Um, she had some type of affiliation with um, Gary Allen Fine. I don't remember if she was his grad student or his co-author or what but there's some connection anyway uh the grapevine book is about rumors and conspiracy theories in african-american culture many of which follow the formula that some consumer brand is owned by say the ku klux klan and there's certain uh tells in its branding and um, either just the, the money that you spend on this consumer brand will go to support people who hate you or the brand may be tampered with in some way mm. to, um, you know, very often there's the idea that it has, you know, some kind of drug in it that suppresses testosterone or sperm count or something like yeah. that as a conspiracy to reduce uh, African-American birth rates, mm. um, you know, and, and it's all bullshit. Uh, but it's a very interesting book and, you know, talking about these, uh, rumors and, you know, how they spread and, you know, she was writing in the early nineties. So basically she's talking about the 1980s and the most famous of these rumors is of course the idea that, um, uh, HIV was, uh, deliberately created again as kind of a bioweapon yeah. to, uh, hmm. uh, suppress black populations. Right. I remember that one. There's something appealing about, I guess, that mode of communication, that rhetorical style that just pulls people in. Okay, so it, it's funny you mentioned the rhetorical style mm -hmm. um, because uh, Slate Star Codex, which is the blog of Scott Alexander, a psychiatrist in San Francisco, mm -hmm. he, he just put out this uh, yesterday, this hilarious um, set of he, – he wrote – accurate debunkings of ridiculous conspiracy theories but he yeah. used the genre tropes of conspiracy theories uh, and he was using and you know i i love satire i mean both because i just enjoy it but also um one nice thing about satire is that it reveals genre conventions mm -hmm. so like you don't need to read my stuff on the oscars if you just watch tropic thunder because honestly <laughs> tropic thunder tells you everything you need to know about how Hollywood and the Oscars work in the form of satire. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, Oliver and I did it through negative binomial regression, but, uh, <laughs> you know, Tropic Thunder is much more entertaining than that. <laughs> so, you know, so Scott Alexander uh, made these fake, uh, you know, curse boomer memes uh, that look superficially like they're presenting ridiculous conspiracy theories, but they're actually debunking them. And, and, and it's interesting. So I'm just going to read one. And then we can kind of parse it to see what the genre conventions are. So the first one is a parody of birtherism, where it's mm -hmm. debunking birtherism, but it looks like a birther meme. So it says, what if the first African-American president, dot, dot, dot. And a picture We're looking of at Slate Star Codex. Yes, that's right. Uh, and, and we can we can link it when we uh, right. tweet. Oh, Prospiracy theories. Prospiracy yeah, yeah, right. theories. Okay. Yeah, and if you're listening to this the day it comes back out, you're going to have to scroll past about a week of posts because he posted yeah. about <laughs> Anyway, so what if the first African-American president, dot, 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 frowning picture of Obama, wasn't from Africa at all? Throughout his campaign, <laughs> Barack Obama played up his exotic background, and then in like this off-kilter font, like on diagonal in a different typeface and a different color, <laughs> it says African hut equals humble origins, and there's like a big MS Paint arrow 
to uh, the background picture of the cover of Dreams from my father. And mm. then it says, but new evidence proves that, quote, Barack Hussein Obama from Kenya, dot, 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 is really just Barry Obama from Hawaii. And it shows this very <laughs> cute childhood picture of uh, Obama playing uh, baseball. And it's circled the, the letters H-A-W-A, the rest, of, the rest of the shirt covered by his arm. And it says, note, Hawa on uniform. Nowhere in Kenya begins with those letters. And then it, <laughs> it, it shows, no reporter has ever found a Kenyan who remembers knowing Obama as a child. Obama's father got a scholarship to the University of Hawaii in 1959, just two years before Obama was born. If he was really born in Kenya, where's his birth, Kenyan birth certificate? Right. Obama's mother, Anne, has light skin, but like many Americans, but unlike almost all Kenyans. And then it says at the bottom, immigrant-loving anti-American liberals would be devastated to learn their precious Obama is no immigrant at all, but from America, the very country they are against. So <laughs> so I, I think this is great, right? Because it's like, it's saying something accurate about right. um, Barack Obama, which is that he was born in Hawaii, and that it's ridiculous to say he's from Kenya or Indonesia or whatever. Um, right. But it it's saying it as if it's this shocking revelation mm -hmm. and it's trying. And, and what's interesting about this to me is it shows that like conspiracy theories don't spread because uh, necessarily because the alternate view of reality they're presenting is compelling. Right. They present because they're revealing esoteric knowledge, right? So mm -hmm. the, the satire that is telling us something that every, you know, that all sane people know about uh, mm -hmm. the former president, which is that he was born in Hawaii. Um, it's saying it as if it's a secret knowledge that other people don't want you to know. Right. And then also it's making it like really exciting and compelling and also adversarial. Right. So here's yeah. the secret knowledge that other people are trying to uh, suppress. And, you know, and then it's also making it seem like uh, here's all these pieces of evidence. People would come up against it, but they're wrong. Mm. You know? Yeah. So it's framing it as if the truth were this uh, revelation of a conspiracy. It's like playing on our hunger for gossip, uh, playing for the engagingness of, yeah, conflict. Yeah. Wanting to see people get owned. Yeah. And then uh, I'm not going to read the other ones, but mm. he has one that says ancient astronauts, which is saying that uh, human beings landed on the moon in the late 1960s. Uh, <laughs> and, and another saying that the Queen of England is just a human being, not a lizard person. And then... Uh, <laughs> Finally, one saying, Earth is a spear. Prove me wrong. <laughs> and in all of them, it's making it sound like the conventional wisdom is that, uh, you know, uh, man hasn't landed on the moon or that the Queen of England is a lizard or that uh, the Earth is flat. But right. it's, it's, it's using it to make it seem like it's this exciting revelation to find out that the Queen of England is a human being or that the Earth is round or that, you know, the Apollo landing happened. What's the insight into, like, what's the take home that you take from, like, these types of things about, like, the human condition about, uh, like, when you see this? You know? Well, original sin, but we knew that already. <laughs> Tim, what do you, what's on you? What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it is funny. I like how they're kind of reversing this. It reminds me a bit of, uh, I think, about Stephen Colbert, the Colbert show, and the way that mm -hmm. he's kind of presented satire. And I don't know. I mean, uh People are – there is something interesting. People are seemingly – a segment of people seem to be suckers for a sort of uh, – some sort of mystery, some sort of deception that's going on. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it is fascinating how some people, uh, fall victim to these types of things and others don't, you know, when I was in, um, undergrad, one of the, uh, you know, the, one of the big sort of, um, 
that had a lot of popularity was that 9-11 sort of loose change uh, documentary. Yeah, yeah, loose change. You know, I mean, this was just like people were just blown away by um, the idea that maybe the U.S. was behind 9-11. And um, then you had people popping up at like uh, uh, press conferences from Bush and uh, that were like these 9-11. I don't even remember the term for it, but uh, it's interesting, you know. Mm. Um, but They're called truthers. Truthers. That's what I was going to say, truthers. But I feel yeah. like I hear this term now, trutherism and all the rest of it. But it's often seizing on these little things. Like you were talking about this Barack Obama, you know, pointing to in this MS paint, pointing to this like little house and then like pointing to like a little T-shirt and uh, just running with these like little threads. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess sociologically, it's sort of interesting, you know, to think about, I guess, who, you know, who, fa- who falls prey to these and, and why and who's reading the National Enquirer and um i don't know uh and these are like fun it's also like i forget who said it who wrote about like you know when people are desperate to retain their worldview in the face of uh in the face of sort of uh you know evidence this disproves sort of tenets or beliefs that were very dear to them in a way like you see that with the trump presidency right people are just they they want to hold true to their views and loose change was definitely like that well, what's what's funny about these things is, particularly like the trutherism stuff, is they're not providing anything remotely like a more parsimonious version of reality. Yeah, it's not about a better point of view or a more accurate. Like if you, if you pay attention to like what the um, the conspiracy theorists are saying about like nine eleven, it's completely insane, and not in the sense of like oh our government wouldn't do that, which is you know our, they wouldn't. Uh, but but just like the idea of like if you think of like what actually happened to the plane, like they have this idea that like the plane was diverted and then they somehow de- destroyed the plane secretly and then they fired mm-hmm. a missile. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why not just crash the plane? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's like it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, e- even if you do have this idea that, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know. Well, actually, I was going to say like, what would be the motive? But my favorite version of trutherism is um, what's her name? The French actress who is in uh, Dark Knight Rises and Inception. She works a lot with uh, Nolan. Mm. Uh, who's that? Who's that? Uh, Cotillard. All right. Yeah, Mar- Marion Cotillard. So um, her theory of why 9/11 was staged is because the building had outdated wiring and it would have been expensive to upgrade it. Oh, right. <laughs> it's an insurance scam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, it was an insurance fraud. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, but but even if you say that, it's like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, why fire a missile and divert a plane? And, you know, I mean, just a, it's just completely incoherent, mm-hmm. even if you are willing to assume that the government right. would do something that evil and that they could keep it secret, et cetera, et cetera, and all the other more facially absurd things about it. It's, it's it's also striking, you know, like in our line of work, we just function on this view of people as like fact interested in facts with a malleable worldview that's not highly motivated. It doesn't have a lot of motivated reasoning. You know, and you figure if you could just show people the good data, they'd be like, well, all right, there you go. And just nothing operates on that. Yeah, you got to realize that it- Almost everyone in society is really reviewer number two. They, they just believe crazy things and there's no convincing them otherwise. And you, like a dumbass, are sending them this elaborate response memo, but they're like, they're not going to Have care. you seen this? Uh, it, this reminds me of, I use this piece when I've taught political sociology um, by Monica Prasad and I, a whole crew of some other individuals, but it's about this issue of Bayesian updating and motivated reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
And so I haven't read it. They so they find I can't remember all the you know the the methodological uh, this and that, but they basically mm. find people that think that. Uh, Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9-11. And so what they do is what they call these uh, challenge interviews where they show them uh, even Bush saying, and these are Bush supporters, Bush two supporters, and that Mm -hmm. that saying that Bush even said, oh, no, you know, there was no link between Saddam and 9-11 and Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. And they also show them uh, some excerpts from the 9-11 Truth Commission. And they see there's like 50 of them and and try to see if they change if they you know engage in whatever Bayesian updating oh, and only one does <laughs> and only only one person out of 49 and so I think I think the title of the article is there must be a reason and that's like one of the things that people say well there must have been a reason why you know we went after Saddam maybe they're not telling us everything or they deflect and say well I don't know anything about that but there's all these different strategies you know these social psychological uh, social social psychological strategies that people engage in to just sort of you know get rid of any sort of cognitive dissonance or um but i think i i mean it, it's it's a, it's an amazing uh piece of research it's also a very oh a very frustrating piece of research too because like <laughs> you said, you know, it's like well if people aren't updating then what's the point of you know um putting anything out what, there? what are we doing <laughs> right yeah well now now to be to be fair to these crazy people you know with like oh there's something they're not telling us like Mm. That you know, there was a few dozen pages redacted about the Saudis mm-hmm. from the nine eleven report, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, now now that few dozen pages isn't going to have anything about controlled demolitions or missiles or any of that yeah. bullshit. But you know, it's almost certainly the case that if you were to read those few dozen pages, it would be that you know, so and so, who's the sister in law of the crown prince, ended up giving money to some charity bundler who gave it to Al Qaeda. You know, right, um, and, and would basically reveal what you know, anyone who follows this stuff knows, which is that um, the Saudis are not nice people and have fairly close and are kind of frenemies with a bunch of people who hate us. Mm-hmm. Did, I, did I say, I, I meant, if, I'm not sure if I said Saudi Arabia, but I, I meant Saddam. No, 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 oh, okay, you okay. said Iraq. Okay, okay. You were, you, what you were saying was absolutely true okay. that um, there, there were no ties worth thinking about between mm-hmm. Al-Qaeda and uh, the Ba'athist regime in Iraq. Um, but, you know, I, I'm saying you can under, you know, you can kind of like give the devil its due as to why are people suspicious? Why do people believe crazy things? Sure. Uh, because there are certain things that will get redacted, uh, you know, most notably when it comes to things like, uh, the Saudis, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even recently with this whole Khashoggi business, you know, in order, you know, the, the U S state was kind of in this difficult position where, um, for kind of balance of power reasons, um, having to do with um, our kind of grand strategy of uh, building an alliance against Iran, you know, the U.S. government basically is unwilling to admit that the Saudis are despicable people. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the government, the government is. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well. Yeah, yeah, okay, fine. I'm sure, I'm sure there's very nice people, you know. Uh, you know <laughs> on, quite, on all sides. You know, Saudi Arabia has some thoroughly despicable people in it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the government basically can't admit that. And so, you know, it, it, will, it will redact. And you saw that again with the Khashoggi thing where mm-hmm. they kind of have to absurdly pretend that there's some uh, dispute as to whether, uh, you know, uh, the Saudi state uh, decided to uh, torture, dismember, and murder a U.S. national. Right, right. Um, 
you know, I mean, you know, we're, I mean, it's about as well documented as anything can be that they did that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if the, if you want, I mean, and the government basically insults us by pretending that there's some ambiguity rather than just saying openly, like, yeah, well, it's not worth ruining our alliance against Iran over, mm-hmm. you know, which at least would respect your intelligence. In a way, it's like a, people are reacting to like a recognition that they are being manipulated somehow. And I guess they're grasping at what the manipulation is, you know, like that you're right. Like factually, like, you know, I guess I don't know if in a past era, people would be more trusting of what they read in the news. Well, if you look at the long run of trust in the government Mm -hmm. and, you know, trust in institutions, you can see an inflection point around, uh, Watergate. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. A- and there was likewise there, you know, something around the late 1960s, early 1970s kind of broke it. So, so Watergate was a big part of it. Mm. And then before that, the Tet Offensive. I mean, the, the irony, if you know anything about the history of the Vietnam War, the irony of the Tet Offensive is that it was a disaster for the communists. Mm-hmm. They basically expended um, a, a sizable number of resources for the NVA and most of the resources for the Viet Cong and were completely defeated. Um, and they weren't able to hold any territory for more than a couple of days, but it was still a, uh, a, a strategic victory for them in a broader sense in that it, Tet was convinced, what convinced most Americans that the government had been lying to them for the last few years. Mm. Because, you know, if you listen to Westmoreland or something like that, something like Tet would have been impossible. And so the fact that they were able to mount an offensive like that showed that the U.S. government had been full of shit mm. all through the mid-1960s. Um, and, and that blew a big blow to um, – dealt a big blow to um, Americans' trust in the government. Mm. And then you know, even though the fact is that if you just look at it at a, at a tactical level, mm. uh, the U.S. and South Vietnam won every single battle pretty decisively in 10. You know, and if you if you know a lot of people or you grew up in a place where, let's say, low information voting was common, like people aren't reading up on the day's events or whatever, they might even barely watch TV. You could see how, you know, the ways that they are manipulated in real ways and some of the scenarios that they dream up. It's like, why not? You know, why is it uh, they're being lied to somehow? They know that. So I don't know. It's probably an incoherent thought. Anybody have anything better? (laughs) <laughs> no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that uh, I might be, you know, I'm not a media scholar, but it seems like uh, attention to some um, news outlets and attention to some, you know, periodicals um, corresponds with, uh, you know, factual inaccuracies. Um, yeah, it's, it is interesting to think about where it is that uh, – people get their information. Sometimes I feel like people are, you know, when I've read, uh, when I took undergrad political sociology courses, I feel like in some instances, uh, people, you know, there would be some scholars that talk about how like the media, in some ways, the media doesn't really all that matter and all the rest of it, but mm. um, for shaping people's views, but it then, but it's still like, okay, well, then where are they getting their views from? And if they're getting it from, you know, their friend or their neighbor, okay, where is that friend or neighbor getting yeah. their views, you know? So like, I mean, I know it can easily be like, well, it's turtles all the way down, but they got to be getting it, you know, getting the, the ideas. They're, they're not just popping out of nowhere, right? So I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, I, I, in the pre-Facebook era, you know, a lot of people, they would receive, I would bet, almost the totality of their politically relevant news 
by word of mouth, and they usually associated with people who are not very politically involved either. And mm -hmm. I, one of the big differences that I see with Facebook is, you know, people are now looking for photos of their there. There are people who would not have engaged in any type of political news or maybe even any news at all. Right. That now receive news incidentally over the course of looking at their friend's baby photos. <laughs> and in a way, it's like we're connecting people who would not have chosen to connect to the whole world of social conflict, social issues in a, in a, in a past era. Right. I wonder if that's at work, if that's at play. So in general, what you guys are describing is the two-step flow model mm -hmm. that we've had in um, the media literature since the forties mm -hmm. where, you know, you have some people who follow the news and then they spread the news by word of mouth to their circle of friends. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, I'm going to guess that like if you don't follow every last piece of news about the Mueller report, mm -hmm. like, you know, you're waiting for the signs of the Messiah to come and liberate you from, <laughs> right. you know, the Romans, <laughs> uh, then, then, um, then, you know, it, you probably it doesn't matter whether you read about it because you have that one sister or whomever who's mm -hmm. constantly telling you like, you know, did you hear that they called in Manafort again for questioning? Yeah. You know, and like, even if you're like, you know what, when the report comes out, I'll read it, you know, or I'll get the gist of it somewhere. But in the meantime, I don't really care. It, you kind of can't escape it because there's going to be people who follow it and will give you that news. Mm. Uh, or likewise, if you don't care about baseball, you're still going to find out who won the World Series because the next day at work, you're going to see somebody wearing their Red Sox shirt. Right. So, um, you know, that's basically the two-step flow model. And it can work with – now, the interesting thing about conspiracy theories is that as a rule, they don't – the two-step flow model starts with mainstream media, right? It starts mm -hmm. with radio stations. It starts with newspapers, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, with conspiracy theories, there's a general rule. They're kind of bottom-up, hmm. although, you know, increasingly we do have, um, you know, relatively large – I don't want to call it mainstream, but relatively large-scale – media organizations that are devoted to conspiracy theories, things like InfoWars. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like we were saying at the very beginning of this now 33-minute segment, yeah. um, <laughs> the, um, you know, sometimes conspiracy theories can be uh, top-down to a certain extent. You mm -hmm. know, you have the Momo thing was kind of spread by voices of uh, respectable authority. The late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, satanic panic was spread by voices of respectable authority. been listening to the annex an academic sociology podcast you can visit our show site at sociocast.org slash annex we are on twitter at socianex and on facebook the annex sociology podcast our producer is laseth moreno music by lena orsa i'm joseph cohen thank you for listening mm -hmm.